bonus episode. This is something we're doing new this year in 2021, and we're super excited to welcome, uh, alongside myself, John Lee, Joshua Morgan, Michael Black, and Sam Kastner. We've got DC United legend John Harks hanging out with us tonight. John, what's going on? How are you? I'm good, guys. Thank you. Uh, great to be on the show, and uh, always good to uh, connect with you. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, while we're not able to socially connect, but uh, and, and certainly share stories and talk about the old DC United days, which uh, makes me very old. I love talking about when it was black and white TV. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, realistically, though, great to be on the show with you guys, and uh, happy to be here. No, thanks so much for joining us, and then I most of our listeners won't be able to see you know, what we're looking at, but it looks like you're rocking one of the new retro kits. What can you tell us about that whole situation? Yeah. So there's a, there's a company. Um, I think it's uh, nostalgia gear. Uh, Michelin Ness, I think is the correct one. And they, they've really put together um, a lot of club branded uh, nostalgia retro gear. They want to go back and obviously from 96 from the first year, um, and what a special year for DC United. And I was able to lift the trophy, the first one, as well as the second, and then go to the final and the third. Um, they wanted to get a lot of brands out there. And so uh, myself, uh, Kobe Jones, Lexi Lawless, and Eric Ronaldo all got on a podcast uh, kind of Zoom call-ish the other day uh, with the retro gear. And uh, it was fantastic. It was really good. So just uh, uh, – I think it'll be in stores. I don't know. I mean, it's, there's a lot of different gear and designs that they came up with, which is, um, you know, pretty cool. And it's old school. And we were having a laugh because the other day we were talking about why are so many kits like just extra large? Why were they so <laughs> big back in the day and baggy, you know? Um, and we still couldn't get that answer. I know Kobe Jones was super fast. I just said it was easier to grab his jersey. When he ran past <laughs> it. So, um, but it was it was great to kind of share stories with those guys, you know, on the beginning stages of the league itself in 96 and the accountability of us trying to grow the game in this country. So um, wearing the retro gear tonight just seems very suitable, I thought. No, that that's awesome. And I, I'll tell you, as a as a sports fan slash podcaster, I'm glad to hear the sizes run a little bit big because the, the <laughs> athletic fit doesn't really work for me. Uh, so. John, obviously, it's been a tough year uh, globally. How are you and the family holding up in this era of COVID? Uh, we're doing okay, thank you. I think there's a lot of people um, that are suffering a lot more than than, than some individuals. And uh, I think depending on, you know, whether it's your region where you live or whether it's through poverty or um, trying to get vaccinations or, or just having access to being tested, I think it's been really a big challenge for a lot of people. So... I think every single day you're, you're, you have kind of grateful, um, well, I mean, it's like a gratitude kind of thought process in terms of like how we're getting through this. And, you know, look, I mean, you know, my, my father-in-law, Ron Kunihiro had COVID last March and it was, he was one of the first uh, people to be admitted into Prince William Hospital. And uh, it was a very scary time because of so many unknowns and we know a lot more about uh, COVID-19 uh, today than we did back then. And so, it was a very scary time. And, um, you know, we went through quite a bit with our family and uh, my wife, Cindy, you know, my whole family, all players and all soccer fans, but everything was put on hold there because, you know, it's, it's a scary situation. And we see that through that now, uh, through the pandemic and also through, you know, even social injustice and, and um, a lot of uh, really hard honest talks, I think, are starting to happen in our country, as we see about what we really believe in, what we stand for. So um, we're holding up. We're doing well. He is healthy, thank God. And, uh, you know, we get, he came out of the hospital. He, you know, he's, he's Japanese. He's from Hawaii, but he started playing his ukulele right away, and we were excited. So everything's okay on that. But thank you for asking. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that um, he recovered and he's healthy now. Um, you mentioned that you have a very athletic family. Um, I know that both your daughters went to college to play soccer. DC United fans will be very familiar with um, Ian's career started at DC United. But what was it like for you to watch your kids develop as soccer players? Um, it was good. It was, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was fun because I think, you know, both Cindy and I had played at a high level and um, I think we were very, conscious of 
you know, how we uh, parent them first, which was number one, and, uh, you know, how we help raise them with good character and, and to be good people and to fight for things that they believe in. And, um, and then the soccer side of it is a huge bonus, to be honest. And um, we, <laughs> we exposed them to so many things, uh, especially our, our, our middle child, uh, Lauren who probably did everything like I did when I was a kid, you know, but she did more because she even did horseback riding and stuff. So, but they all came back to soccer and, um, you know, we were just very, very grateful that they're healthy, you know, and that they can run again. And, you know, our, our youngest daughter, Lily, who's at Elon University, had a difficult scare with her health last year at getting a pulmonary embolism out of nowhere for a young kid. And so, you know, she's playing soccer now for Elon in the spring and, She's so competitive, you know, like my wife, not me. I'm not competitive, but uh, uh, but she's so competitive that she gets so focused on the games. And I'm like, I'm just so happy you're able to run and just breathe and be healthy again. So, you know, you, you take things in perspective. Um, and, uh, you know, Lauren's, you know, graduated with a master's in organizational leadership. She did her fifth year out in Creighton after doing four years at Clemson. Um, Ian's playing in Scotland uh, in the premiership with uh, Dundee United um, after two great years with DC United. So, I mean, you know, we're just very happy. We're very lucky as a family. That's awesome to hear. Uh, I, I just want to go kind of into your thought process when, when Ian decided to, to sign with DC United. What, did, what was that moment like for you uh, as a former DC United player? I, I think it's... Um, it was exciting, you know, it was a, it's a positive thing in life and um, it's a great opportunity for him to kind of learn to be a pro and be part of a club that I, you know, grew up in basically. And so, um, you know, the, the one thing about he's smart, intelligent kid, and um, he understood that there was going to be some pressures there, obviously a lot of narratives that were going to be focused on, Oh, your dad did this, or your dad did that. But, you know, it's, it's really unfair to compare me to him in any, you know, situation, because there's times where people would see him play at 14 years old and they're like, oh, well, your dad does this. Well, your dad's also 32, you know, so it, it, it's from, from his perspective, he's handled it extremely well. Um, you know, we, we even coached him, you know, Cindy and my father-in-law, Ron, coached him from a young age. And then I coached him between maybe 11 and 12, 13. And then we just let him have a different voice from anybody that's in the club. And um, which is important for him to grow up and to understand the game from other perspectives. So he has respect for that. And, um, you know, we're just very, very um, happy that he had the experience at DC United. Um and it, it took him overseas where his heart wanted to go. And uh, he ended up being at Dundee United, which is, God, my, that's my, my dad's youth club that he grew up in, like two blocks away. So it's kind of interesting <laughs> that that happened. And uh, God does work in mysterious ways. Yeah, and we're so happy to see that Ian's been having some success over there at Dundee. You know, kind of turning back to your own playing career, uh, you grew up in New Jersey and your hometown kind of ended up being a sort of hotbed for a lot of early U.S. national team players. Um, how did that work out? It worked out well. <laughs> worked out well, Michael. You know, uh, no, it was, uh, we were very fortunate. You know, Tab Ramos um, was a couple blocks away from me in Kearney and, um, yeah, Tony Miola was up the other end of Kearney and uh, it was just a hotbed for soccer and a lot of it was based on us being first generation Americans. Um, our parents had played, you know, and, and coached and, you know, I'd been involved in the game and we had a, a very, you know, I grew up in a Scottish family, first generation American. Tabs was from Uruguay. Um, Tony was Italian. And um, so, you know, it was interesting to see that you know, we had such a great support system in place and, and one that not just taught us the game the right way, but taught us the values in, in soccer and life. Um, and it made you accountable from a really young age and it made you tough. I mean, it was, Carney was a tough town. I mean, it was a blue collar town next to Newark and Harrison and, you know, there's uh, the nicer areas or Lynnhurst and North Arlington as you go further away. 
And so you had to be a fighter, you know, and it was great. You know, we, we competed. Uh, my older brother played. Uh, he's three years older than me. And we always wanted to play up. And so my dad, you know, had us compete against the, the older team, you know, in the Carney Thistle youth system. And we did that. And then when I got to Carney High School, I was a freshman on the varsity. My brother was a senior. And I, I learned <laughs> a lot of things and, uh, you know, kind of a hard knocks, you know, in the game. And so, you know, from, from our perspective, it was good that we, we grew out of that. Myself, Tony, I mean, the Tab is, you know, they're both very special players. They have, you know, Tab is just incredibly technically gifted, you know, in terms of one-on-one -on -one breaking down plays, opening up the game and stuff. And uh, from a young age, he had speed and power. Um, and Tony, you know, was a tremendous athlete. He could have played baseball, football, you know, soccer. And thankfully he went in goal because uh, he was a big boy back in the day. And uh, uh, he did extremely well. And I still remember at Giant Stadium uh, with Bob Gansler um, had us, you know, playing in one of those Marlboro Cup tournaments really early on. And Tony wasn't part of the system yet, but both our goalkeepers got injured. And I said, well, I know somebody locally. We're playing at Giant Stadium. I said, I know somebody locally that could step in right away if you want to take a look at him. And Tony came in and the rest is history there. So we grew up in a really good culture. Um, you know, it was really like a European culture. Like it was, for me, it seemed like little Scotland where I'm sure for, for Tab and Tony, it just seemed like little Uruguay or little, little Italy. And uh, it was just such a European model, you know, the way we were built up there. And I was like competing in that youth system all the way up. And there was not every age back in those days, if you think about it, it was U19s and U16s and then U14s and 12s. And I think that we miss a lot in the game from that perspective in terms of growth. Um, right now we have a very good youth, um, you know, depth chart of quality soccer players that are playing overseas. And uh, that's, that's been brilliant. But I, I sometimes back in my mind, I would love to go back to that system again, where guys can play up with older players and learn that both in the, in the boys and the girls side. John, critical Jersey question for you. Were you Giants or Jets? I was a Giants, big Giants fan. I knew I liked you. <laughs> I was a big Giants fan, and also I was, a, I was a hockey fan. I played a lot of street hockey, and then um, we started doing ice hockey in, in high school a little bit. Um, and I was sneaking over on the path train for a dollar over to see uh, Madison Square Garden to see the Rangers play. <laughs> and so that was before that was before um, the, the, the Devils actually even started at like the old, God, Brendan Byrne Arena, maybe, I think it was in the Meadowlands. Uh, so everybody was like, oh, you're from Jersey, you're a Devils fan. I was like, no, I grew up Rangers fan all the time. So yeah, there you go. Giants fan and Rangers. <laughs> well, quite the athlete, it sounds like you were. Um, but lucky for us, you, you stuck with soccer and um, you started your career in Albany and then quickly moved over to Sheffield Wednesday. Um, where, I mean, in your very first season, you scored goal of the year, and then you went on to win the FA Cup and see the team promoted. Um, I'm just kind of kind of open the floor and let you generally talk about what that experience was like. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a daunting experience. It was a big challenge. I think a lot of people think that I went over there and snapped my fingers and became a pro. Um, it was a long process for me. Um, and I think it was more based on, you know, the, the, the clubs that I was with. Ron Atkinson uh, was the manager of Sheffield Wednesday at the time, who had tremendous experience in the game, had just been at Manchester United, you know, a massive club. And, um, you know, he, he liked me. He, he talked to me. Tony Miola and I were there January of 1990, prior to the World Cup in Italy. Um, and he asked me to stay on until the end of the year. I declined because I thought I was very mature as a player at that time. And I thought, wow, this is the first time we've qualified for the World Cup in 40 years. And we're going to have like a full schedule of games like building up to that. So I thought it was important for me to stay with the U.S. men's national team at that time. And I turned them down, although I did ask if if I did well in the World Cup, would he give me another opportunity to come back afterwards, which was risky. Um, but um, you know, he said yes, and uh, it ended up working afterwards in July and August. I went back to Wednesday, and then Blackburn Rovers wanted me on trial. I went there. I had a contract offer from Sheffield Wednesday, probably after about six weeks of training. And then I went to Celtic, and then I ended up coming full circle back down to Sheffield Wednesday because it just felt like home, to be honest with you. Um, but when I did come back, the gaffer made me actually work for it again. 
And so I had to play three more reserve games over two weeks. And thankfully, I did really well there. But um, yeah, it was it was fantastic. It's a great club. You know, kind of like um, they were really well known in Sheffield for the steel, you know, in the industry in, industry. And uh, it was a tough town, but it was um, everything about the way I grew up, you know, kind of knowing my family in Scotland and England. And uh, I was visiting them as a kid, you know, for so long, for many years. And uh, it just felt right. It really did. And he was a tr terrific manager who really not as a leader kind of praised himself. He actually wanted to make sure that you believed in yourself as a player. So he tested you and took you out of your comfort zone a lot. And I learned a lot from him in terms of my managing approach now. Uh, I learned a lot from him and Bruce Arena both. Yeah, speaking of Bruce Arena, near and dear to our hearts, DC United, you decided to come back to America to be part of the, the newly forming MLS. Can you talk about the, the process and deciding to come back to, to America to play soccer and what it was like to be a part of MLS in its infancy? Yeah, um, the process, um, you know, it, it really started, the conversation started to take off after the 94 World Cup. And we did extremely well um, hosting there, uh, you know, really at a time where it could have been a lot of pressure on us to do well, because we had to get out of the first round to actually prove to the rest of the world that we deserve to host. Um, which we did, and then ended up losing to Brazil, uh, the eventual winners. Um, but we, you know, the, the conversations, everybody thought that Major League Soccer was, was going to start the year after the World Cup in 95. And I think there was, you know, from a business standpoint, the structure wasn't set up appropriately. And, you know, we kept hearing conversations about, is it going to be delayed? What's happening? Um, at that time, I was at Derby County, and I was going on loan to West Ham. Harry Redknapp and Frank Lampard Sr. were the coaches at West Ham at the time, and uh, I loved playing for them. I mean, it was a great club, a history club. Um, had a lot of success in the past and some quality players through there. And Frank Lampard Jr. was there. Uh, Rio Ferdinand was there in the youth groups at that time that were coming through the ranks. It was an exciting time to be at West Ham, and... Uh, the more conversations started to happen, I do remember Kevin Payne making a phone call to me and then Sunil Gulati got on the phone to me uh, saying that Major League Soccer was going to go forward in 96. And this was probably at the end of November into December of 95. Um, so we were like, okay, um, my wife and I, Cindy, uh, just had Ian in March of 95. And so uh, there was a lot of unrest in London at the time in terms of the IRA and bombings. And it, it wasn't a very safe place to be. And uh, I just remember those combinations of the league maybe starting up, taking on responsibility as a player and accountability to grow the game in our country. Plus the fact that I had a, a young son now and it was a little bit of risky, you know, situation living there. Um, I think it, it kind of, culminated in me just saying, Let, let's go back and give it a try. And it was, it was risky, a big risk, because there's a lot of unknowns. And um, we were in the dark at times, like, how's this really going to go? Is this something that could ruin years where we go back there and it fails after the first year? And then what? Do you turn around and try to get back to Europe again? Or, you know, uh, where's your next career uh, move? So, uh, thankfully, it worked extremely well. You know, from a DC United perspective, we had all the right people in the front office and running the club the right way. Uh, we had Bruce, you know, just starting out as a pro coach. Um, so even, you know, he at that time and all the success that he had at UVA, where I was coached by him at UVA, it was fantastic. But even he knew that he needed to grow as a coach in this league. And so a lot of us were all kind of coming into it like, how are we going to do this? You know, um, what's it going to look like? And so, look, it was, um, you got to dip your toe in the water a little bit, but for us, it, you had to plunge right away. You have to just jump right in and not ask questions. And, you know, we went through a difficult stage coming out of the gates, actually, as DC United, if I re remember our, gosh, I remember our record at one point, we might have had three wins and maybe eight losses or something like that. And, uh, but we, I think we always had faith and, and belief in what we were doing. We had Kevin Payne running things in the front office. We had Fred Mathis, who was absolutely brilliant in, in selling tickets and organizing a club at the ground levels. 
And um, there was so many great people that were in that front office too, that can drive the game. And, and actually we were salesmen of the league. We ended up just being so many, so many appearances to get the game, you know, up and running in that particular area. And we wanted to be relevant in, in, uh, in DC and Northern Virginia, Maryland, and we wanted to get out there. So we did a lot of appearances off the field as well as on. How did you end up with DC United? You know, they have mechanisms for distributing players as they were getting started, but did you have any say in that? Or did they tell you, we want you to go to DC and you said- Yeah, I think, I think we had a, a bit of a say. Um, I know that there was conversations with Charlie Solitano, um, knowing me since I was like 13, 14 in New Jersey. And I think there was conversations about coming back up there and playing in, in for the, um, that, other, that other team. Uh, up north, um, what was it called? I don't know, Metro something. Um, but they, uh, you know, when it came down to it, I think it made sense for me to be, you know, with with Bruce and you know, uh, my wife's family's from Northern Virginia, and uh, we both went to UVA, and I kind of, you know, I just said like this could be a really good start for me. So I was very very fortunate that that worked out. Um, and, uh, you know, the rest, the rest is history, to be honest with you. But uh, we, we started out and did very well. You know, winning the first title was in, incredibly special. Um, you know, I can still remember that game and just lifting that, to that, that trophy, um, which was incredible. It really was to, to be part of history like that and, and um, to, to get an opportunity at that platform to kind of set the stage of, like, what kind of club we're going to be. And who, who's going to drive the winning um, kind of mentality, but also um, the family structure that we were, um, which was pretty amazing. Yeah, of all the silverware that you won here with the black and red, I mean, you talked about the first MLS Cup, but there were more in the Supporter Shields, the Open Cup, and even the CONCACAF Champions Cup. Was it that first one that sticks out the most to you, or was there – you know, what, what sticks out to you the most about your time with the club? Um, I think, I think the first, the first trophy is always uh, the, the, well, I, I think, well, all five titles that we won there in three years that I was there at the club. Um, we won the Inter-American Cup as well against Vasco da Gama, which was pretty special. Uh, the CONCACAF Champions Cup was, was brilliant in itself because we got a lot of respect internationally at that point, or even in our CONCACAF region. And that was a first for us. So I think we were being trailblazers in, in terms of the first um, stepping forward. And um, uh, but that first trophy, wow. Um, you know, it's funny, you look back on it and, and you're like, what does that mean to you? But it, it defines an era. It really does. It set the stall out for us. And it, it actually set the stall an example for the league of like what kind of club we wanted to be, the traditional club of DC United and the winning ways that we had. And it's pretty special because you can look at even 97, winning it at home at 57,000 plus in the torrential downpour rain again, um, like we had the Nor'easter storm in 96 and uh, up in Boston. And uh, it's, it's special to win on your home soil. It really is to win a trophy like that in a final, the way we did and dominated that game in 97 was uh, pretty incredible. And so, you know, there's a lot of moments and it's hard to sometimes, you know, put a pecking order on it because they all, they're all significant in their own way. Um, but the way that we drove that and continue to drive who we were as a club and, and our brand uh, was important for the community. And um, I think we became very relevant in that community quickly. And, and it's not just by winning. It was, it was more about like who we were, our personalities, the way that we were a club for the community. And that's important. That's what I try to do here at Greenville Triumph as well. It's, um, you know, that's what I said to the ownership group before I came here. It's just like what I try to do at, these, uh, at um, FC Cincinnati. Like we have to be a club for the community. That's number one. If you connect that first and you understand your purpose, then you're going to have success regardless whether you win or lose. And so I think we did that pretty well. Yeah. Uh Speaking of the personalities and that, that kind of culture that you guys had, the, the names that you've kind of rattled through there, uh, Arena, Bradley, Marsh, uh, later on, Olsen, yourself, like, was there something about the culture there in the early DC United days that, that made such good managers or, or was it always in you guys? 
Well, I mean, I think uh, I think we learned, you know, from from Bruce. We learned from you know Bob Bradley. We learned from Dave Sarakin. Um, I think you'd be a fool not to. <laughs> so these are very successful, um, not just coaches, but leaders and and you know genuine people that that care a lot about their players and. Um, you know, it's important to understand that and be open to that and, and make sure that you have a growth mindset um, when you're playing. And sometimes it's hard because you have such an ego that drives you on to win and compete that, you know, you can become such an individual at times. But Bruce would never allow that in our club. And I think that's pretty fantastic. You know, whether it be Jaime Moreno, Diaz Arce or Marco Echeverri, international players coming to compete and play for us, um, we were always just one team. And we're only as good as the player next to you. And it's just like the same thing. You're only as good as the people around you. And that's how I still live life. Um, so from my perspective, we were always one, you know, as one, one club, you know, and that's, I think that's what brought a lot of success with us. Yeah. With um, all those, you know, legendary players you just named, I'm sure that there were um, some intense moments in practice when you all were really pushing each other to your best. <laughs> Is there any yeah. particular intense like practice or maybe Everybody a locker room wanted scuffle? to kick the crap out of Richie Williams. <laughs> I mean, he was just such a pain in the ass. He really was. Um, you know, he's got that little kind of like aggressive, you know, chip on his shoulder, Jersey mentality, yeah. uh, which... <laughs> You know, I, I, I guess I do too, but, um, you know, we always had that winning spirit, that competitive nature and, um, sure that would cross over in training, you know, quite a bit. Um, but I think that's what made us, you know, who we were, we were honest, you know, it's better to be upfront and honest so that you're not going into the little dark corners and, and having those little conversations, you know, behind players back. So yeah, we disagreed on a lot of different things, but I think we were given the platform to have it out, you know, in some aspect. And uh, the more conversations and the, you know, the more questions we had, the better we were. And um, th those are the best teams. It it's like, you know, I look at it in a very similar way to directing a movie or producing a film. And you're gonna have so many different scripts written and slipped under your door mm -hmm. on a nightly basis and changed and questioned and why are we doing this and what does that scene look like and why but the more that you question it the better the film is at the end and it's it's the same with the team um communication is key when you're a manager if if you have to constantly check for understanding with your players then you're not communicating the right way i found that you know bruce's approach um could sometimes be like wow we're we're a little bit questioning his narrative like what does he mean like why are we doing this in terms of shape formation whatever but then bruce had great assistant coaches like bob bradley and dave sarakin that would easily you know clarify that and then we would confirm it and be okay we know exactly what we need to do so you know guys are always you know kind of on the same page but i i think the balance is, is what, and this is the biggest challenge for every coach, every manager, is to have that structure in place and to have that team first mentality that you're going to go across that white line and, and make sure that you bust your ass for every player on that field and you sacrifice for the team first. Because when you do that, you actually stand out as an individual. And that's, that's the kind of, you know, approach and mentality that I have here as a manager. And so we learned a lot of that from Bruce early on. Um, and Bruce is a typical Brooklyn guy. He can be very coy and passive. And sometimes you don't know if he's being sarcastic or he's got the underlying tones, which he's trying to get the message across to you. So um, it's always good to give guys stick back and forth, you know, and he was always good for that with the having banter, which was important. <laughs> you know, you talk about building that culture and connecting with the players. Um, off the field, were there any guys that you said, okay, if I'm going to go out and I need to grab a beer, this is the guy I'm going to go to, this guy I've got to bring along to make sure we're having a good time or any other characters that particularly stand out to you on the uh, off the field stuff? Yeah, I think, I think, um, you know, I think naturally you, you kind of um, get drawn to people with the same likeness, 
you know, of, of things that you like. Um, you know, I, I, we, we would hang out quite a bit, um, off the field and, but I don't think we ever like went into little cliques or groups. It was always like, we were kind of together on everything. And even in like preseason training, it was like, Hey, three or four of us were thinking about grabbing dinner away tonight. Cause we got per diem, which was very little back in the day. <laughs> um, and, uh, but it was a thought process of saying, not just the three or four of us go get dinner. Let's get the whole team together. And we did that a lot. We did it a lot. I mean, whether it be, you know, me and Richie or, um, Tom Pressis or Marco or, you know, John Maisner, you know, uh, we were always Tony Senna, you know, it was like, Hey, let's get the whole group together. And somebody contacts somebody else. You get those guys. We'll contact these four. And so there wasn't like a, an individual, like, like, Hey, we're going to go grab a beer all the time. It was more about like, Hey, if we're getting out, some of us have families. And when we do get out, let's do it together as a family, you know, cause that's your soccer family. That's what you do. Yeah. And somehow we're going into season 26 of major league soccer now uh, which is kind of mind-boggling to think about the league has changed in so many ways in, in your mind how, how do you think mls has changed since when you were a player yeah i think back to you said 26 years wow i mean i think back to when i started in mls and i was what 15 i think okay never mind paying attention um yeah no i i look at i look i i I reflect back on, you know, those beginning stages where, you know, we were building things. And, um, and I think through that process, um, it was just such a belief of that this game is going to take off. And, you know, I'm sure there's different, you know, uh, cooler talks and beer talks at night in the bars and stuff where everybody goes, yeah, but do you remember when we were one signature away from the league failing? Yes, of course I do without a doubt um very close to those conversations and but at the same time i just think the perseverance of the people the will uh, of the game itself uh thank god the business um you know structure took off as well and and uh, you look fast forward till today and you see what a strong league we have um we see how strong our pyramid structure is now based on division two and division three is mm -hmm. pro pro level in this country with USL championship being around for a while. And now you look at USL league one starting in 2019. Um, that is important. It's really important. And you look at the countries around the world that have great success and how many teams are playing and competing. And um, earlier you had mentioned the FA cup. Um, and it's like one of the oldest tournaments in the world. And so, you know, amateurs can compete and play. And now you've got the Open Cup, and we're hoping that the Open Cup comes back this year. Um, mm -hmm. Thankfully, Greenville Triumph is yeah. in it because we yeah. won the league in their championship. <laughs> um, and I know a lot of teams aren't in the Open Cup, and it might be a shortened version, but at the same time, it's one of the biggest tournaments I look forward to. Mm -hmm. And I always did, even as a player with DC United, and you know, with uh, won the Open Cup with Columbus Crew as well. Um, you know, that was their first trophy, and uh, we won the Open Cup for a club that was owned by Lamar Hunt. So think about that, how special that was for them. Um, so look, I mean, you, you fast forward to today and you see the opportunities that are there for pros to be in this game. You look at the NWSL on the women's side and how incredibly um, successful they've been and the growth and the bumps in the road that they all hit as well. Um, yeah, that's part of growing the game. You're going to have those times. And just like, just like players and just like, you know, coaches and leagues and clubs, you're going to fail. But the ones that fail and pick themselves up and continue to fight, you know, through that are the ones that do become successful. And so hopefully the, the USL will continue to grow um, on both the men and the women. Uh, there's talk of having a Division II USL Women's League and uh, maybe even a possible Division Three down the road. So for me, it's incredibly important to have that. And when you look back to the responsibility you take on in the game of not just being a player, but, you know, being selfish and focusing on your career, but looking at the bigger picture and saying, how do we grow the game here and get success and to have respect around the world. It's important that the men and women, both divisions, first, second, and third, all three really, um, but both sides of the game become successful in this country for a long period of time. 
Yeah. Um, so you mentioned winning the Open Cup with Columbus. Um, I think you also played for some other team up in New England, but we're just going to skip those because obviously your time at D.C. was, you know, the most enjoyable. Um, but I wanted to shift to internationally because internationally because you've played in two World Cups and you were captain of the men's national team. What did that mean to you? Uh, a great deal of pride um, and honor. Uh, certainly the, you know, the, the role that you get um, you're very grateful for, but the first time you put on a U.S. jersey is uh, the biggest honor in the world, um, you know, because it's you know that there's so many other players that deserve to wear that and they want to wear that, uh, but somehow you've been chosen to get it, you know, have an opportunity to wear it. So uh, always grateful for that. And, uh, yeah, it was tremendous, you know, incredible experiences. Getting to the first World Cup in 40 years um, in 1990 was you know, a big challenge, a big challenge. And the U.S. Soccer Federation took on a, a lot of responsibility, you know, for that, to get us together and, and to compete and to get more games and experience. Um, and then hosting in 94 and having success there, um, you know, the, the game just took off like crazy. And that was, uh, 90 was getting back to that world stage, but 94 was taking the leap off of that platform and saying, we're here, we're showing up. And I think a lot of people um, took notice. They, uh, they, they, they recognized that we were a country that wanted to grow the game and push it in the right direction. And so the women at that time had already had success in the World Cup. And uh, so now it was, you know, and I, I try to explain this to a lot of people. Um, the women actually introduced the game to the rest of the world, our US women, and having that success in 91 and winning that first World Cup. And the yeah. men were catching up to the rest of the world. And it's going to take time. And I think a lot of people get frustrated with that. And they, they forget to think about the bigger picture of things like the history of the game, how long it's taken for many nations to have success in the World Cup. Um, and even in 94, you think about England weren't even in the World Cup, they didn't make it. So it happens. Yeah. I mean, we've had some disappointments with the Olympic team on the men's side. We had disappointments with the men's World Cup, not getting there in the last round uh, cycle. Things got to change. You know, we, we need, um, but we need people to stay optimistic and positive and not be critical. So we got to continue to keep pushing that side. And the women have had such great success and, you know, the game itself, playing in two World Cups, playing in the Olympics in 88, um, representing my country. I was very fortunate. And, uh, you know, I, I, I will always, tr always treasure that. You mentioned it a little bit there, but with, you know, what happened in, in, in uh, qualifying for, for the 2018 World Cup and obviously the, the Olympics more fresh in our mind, you know, what is it that you think yeah. has to change for, for U.S. soccer on the men's side? I mean, it, in, in our opinion, I think as a show, we're feeling a little bit more optimistic about the, the senior team, you know, and kind of the direction they're headed in. But there's a lot of moving parts right now. What, what, what's your perspective on, on where the men's program is as a whole? Um, I, I think it's a, I think it's a, a little bit of an emotional roller coaster to be honest. Um, I think there needs to be a real priority of our Olympic team and our program and of, of getting back there and, and having the age appropriate players available for that um, on a consistent basis. And you know, when you look at our team, we have a lot of talented players. Um, there's been so many different discussions about the Olympic players not having enough games being tried, uh, true, tested, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would just be cautious and remind people and even remind the U.S. Soccer Federation that that age group is a very tricky age group and they need to be inspired not just coached and they need to have a balance of discipline, uh, accountability as a young player, but also freedom to express yourself, to be creative. And, and that, that can be hard to find. Um, but I think that we can get back there. It was a shame that we didn't qualify this time. And to be fair, there's been at times where I think, yeah, that's unacceptable um based on some of the talent 
in a COVID year where we don't have a lot of preparation um, and sometimes the timing of it doesn't make sense as, as compared to some of the other ones, uh, the other leagues and countries where they're consistently playing and they have a little bit more fitness conditioning and tempo and rhythm in their game. Um, that, that is, that's true. That's true. But look, from you add that and into the U.S. men failing to qualify for the last round of the, the last cycle, um, yeah, it, it doesn't look good, you know, but at the same time, I'm hopeful, um, mm -hmm. just like I'm hopeful for change in our country in terms of social injustice, um, you know, and racism and, you know, and poverty and, you know, opportunities to make our nation better. And I think there's still ways of being uh, optimistic about our men's soccer program, that it can be better. We can learn from this. And I just hope we speed up the process and do it now <laughs> and not wait for another cycle. Yeah, we love that optimism. We, we try to, to hold that here uh, on the show. Early in, the, in our conversation, you talked a little bit about playing up while you were at Thistle and, and the, how that helped your youth development. But now as a coach uh, for, for Greenville, you're seeing youth players develop. How how different is that? And what do you think is that a factor in us getting to a place as U.S. soccer on the men's side that, that we want to be? Well, how different is that? I'll answer your first question. It is different. Um, I think that, you know, generations of players are always going to be different, the way they're raised, um, the way that their day-to-day -day life is, um, the introduction of technology into their life. Um, the amount of time that they could maybe have freedom outside and play and compete and just be on the courts and play soccer five aside games all day. I don't, you don't see that much, you know, anymore. And that's kind of how we grew up. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do as a coach and a manager um, is uh, you have to learn how they learn. You have to adapt to the society uh, and the way that players are raised, what motivates them you know, what, what makes them click. And if you're able to do that and spend the time and the investment in each of those players, then it comes back twofold because then they feel like they're in a safe environment. They feel trusted and they give you everything they got. And I don't see any other way to coach, to be honest with you. Uh, I think it would be a very big challenge to just kind of put out, here's how our system is, here's our style of play, and this is what our basic principles are, and we're doing it this way without even having those opportunities to know what kind of players you have, the strengths and weaknesses, personalities, the skill sets, the ambition, the, you know, coaches don't make players. Players make players. Coaches help guide them and teach them things. But players make players. And sometimes, you know, I think, I benefit from scouting. I can scout a player and get, see the potential in that player. Maybe that player has his wings clipped and he doesn't have the confidence anymore, but he has some of the skill sets that you see and can we build him back up emotionally to believe in himself? That's how you lead. That's how you coach. And so we're not always going to get that right, but we try, you know, to do that at our level. And I think we've done pretty well so far. Um, you know, for a small club, an independent club in Greenville, South Carolina, <laughs> right next to Clemson football country. Um, <laughs> we try to bust the gates wide open by getting to the final in the first year in 2019. And then this past year during a pandemic, winning the championship title. And it was pretty special for our club. It really was. And, uh, you know, this year in 2021, we, I retained 14 of those players of, of our core roster. And I've added a couple of veterans and we're, we've got some trialists that we're adding now. Um, and we kick off against Richmond on April 24th. So, you know, the everyday expectations are the players already know. Um, they already know our style of play. They already know what our culture is like and what the demands are. And if they're not willing to buy in, they don't usually sign here or I don't offer them anything here. So, you know, we're not going to always get it right. Like I said, it's difficult, but um, the modern day player is different and you have to adapt as a coach. Adaptability was the number one thing that kept us all going through the pandemic in 2020. And that still continues going forward in 2021. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about your career after hanging up the cleats. 
and once you stopped it as a player, you were a commentator for ESPN for a while. Uh, yeah. I think you even got to work a, a World Cup with them. What was that experience like? Uh, tremendous, actually. It was really good. Um, it, you know, it was eye-opening uh, because, you know, right when I retired in 2003 from Columbus Crew, um, DC United, uh, Kevin Payne actually did a retirement game for me against Tottenham Hotspur. And then two weeks later, I was flying out to LA and working for Fox Television, doing hosting MLS Rap, the first show in Major League Soccer, which was kind of strange for me, <laughs> that actually covered all the games and the, you know, basically the highlights throughout the whole weekend. Mm -hmm. So that was hard work. It was difficult. And, you know, as a player, I was coaching youth at the time and you know coaching my kids when they were younger when i could on the side after training sessions and stuff like that and i always liked coaching um and you know i i did kind of both commentary and coaching i was able to coach within the u.s soccer uh federation uh with ziggy schmidt um god rest his soul um a great person a great manager um i coached with him in the under 20s in the world cup in 2005 uh, in holland and um, so I was always kind of uh, putting myself in positions. That even with DC United, I took on a director of youth development role um, at DC United and wanted to build that up. And, and, you know, I was fortunate enough to have great coaches in the area, uh, my wife Cindy being one of them. And I wanted girls programs in the men's, you know, game. And everybody thought I was crazy. But, you know, we built up probably, I think we had about 10 teams at that time, which was great. Um, but I, I, you know, put myself in situations where I can not actually not just do the commentary and, and, and go to World Cups and experience that as a commentary, you know, analyst. It was difficult because I wanted to be on the field and you still <laughs> want to play and you have that passion, but you know your body can't take it anymore. Uh, it's been beat up. And I was fortunate, look, in the game to have success. And I was fortunate to play the game for 13 years as a pro. And I loved it. It was tremendous. I you know, I still love it now. That's why I coach, but, uh, you know, I, but it was, it was great, but I was always coaching. And I, I think as I, you know, I've, as I experienced that with Fox and with ESPN and, you know, covered, um, got three world cups. I covered, I was very fortunate 2002. Yeah. 2002, 2006 and 2010. And, um, I think at that point I started to realize that I, I loved the entertainment and the media side of things, but I, I really love deeply and the passionate of coaching and learning the game that way and teaching the game as best as I could. So, you know, I did all the coaching licenses. I just finished my um, pro coaching course this year, uh, which was a full year during the pandemic. I've never done so many PowerPoints in my life. <laughs> um, I, my daughter would laugh at me because it would take so long to do one when she could do it in an hour. Um, <laughs> So learning that process and always staying up with the, the educational side of the game and the current trends in the game, I think it's really important for any manager to do that. Um, and, and because we all have our blind spots. Mm -hmm. And uh, once you remove the ego and you understand your purpose, that you're there for, for everybody else and you have this servant leadership about you, it's very important to, to act on that. So having the education part of it was great for me. The licenses were fantastic. And uh, it's good. It brings structure to your, your coaching and your approach. Yeah. Uh, a little known fact out there, but I, I actually grew up in South Carolina and it is a hotbed for, for youth talent. I, I know, uh, I think all your kids or at least most of them went to, went to play college in the Carolinas. What attracted you? That's to, true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Cindy and I were just talking about that the other night over a glass of wine. We're like, how did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> And my house is still in Fairfax, Virginia. I love the area. Um, I, I love it there. But it is funny how they all, you know, look, Cindy and I both played at UVA. Um, you know, she played pro with me overseas. And look, I, we always said, like, wherever our kids go, whatever they do in life, we just said, look, be the best you can be. That's it. Yeah. Um, so they all went, you know, Ian went to Wake Forest, you know, Lauren went to Clemson, and Lily went to Elon University. Yeah. So. <laughs> You know, she's our last one that's in, in school still. Um, she's a junior at Elon. And, uh, you know, academically, she's off the charts as well. She can graduate as a junior if she wants to. But that's I think awesome. doing her thesis and uh, into her senior year, she'd like to play one more year. 
Awesome. Um, so yeah, our kids, I don't know, man. <laughs> Nobody wanted to go to UVA. Both there. And I was like, wow, okay, I get that. Um, and uh, it's funny because, you know, I was a midfielder and uh, Cindy was a striker and none of our kids are strikers. <laughs> and she's like, what happened? <laughs> I was like, I know, where's that? She's a killer instinct in the 18. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, they, they don't have that. <laughs> it's fun to watch them play and they're great they've loved the game and um ian and i and and really lily are big liverpool fans mm-hmm. and uh, i always have been and uh, since i was 11 um and i got to score at anfield against liverpool when i was playing for sheffield okay. wednesday which was brilliant a brilliant time for me and uh and Lauren now has taken on the Liverpool too, and uh, Cindy's <laughs> the only one who has not really jumped over to the Liverpool side. It's been interesting, uh, but you know, look, we're winning and then we're losing. Like this year's been a challenge, but the kids are all great. They yeah. love it. They play. We let them choose what they want to do as long as they um, have good character. Um, and uh, yeah, they've all gone to the Carolines. Yeah. I don't know. It's a strange one, man. Yeah. Is that is that part of the reason why you are uh, lured down to coach Greenville? Yeah, them being yeah it actually is. Um, you know, I, I had a great um, first year at Cincinnati, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a great deal of success on and off the field. The fan base was tremendous there. Um, and then took a, a year off to kind of reflect on that, how I could be better as a coach, how, you know, what my next, you know, kind of step would be. Uh, my daughter was at Clemson, Lauren, and she was competing and playing there. Um, Jake Edwards, president of USL, had reached out to me and said, like, Parksy, where are you? And I said, well, I'm at Clemson. <laughs> he was like, oh, do you mind if Chris Lewis from the new club Greenville Triumph um, contacts you and just picks your brain on everything? And I said, wait, Greenville Triumph? Greenville, South Carolina? <laughs> he was like, yeah. He goes, oh, yeah, they're starting up a – uh, a new club and I said oh wow that's fantastic and I said uh, okay great and I said yeah let me you know connect with me give him my contact information no big deal and um, I saw that he was like yeah give him uh, oh he was like hey you have a pretty good Twitter following so can you just you know tweet something out for them so I didn't tweet anything out for them but I did direct message them say wishing you all the best in Greenville hope it's because I've been to Greenville a couple of times mm-hmm. you know you come out here it's a, it's a cool little town it's like a little Georgetown like downtown area, it's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, great restaurants, cafes. You know, uh, great chefs that are coming here into town, and it's one of the fastest economic growth um, small towns in the country. To be fair, um, and they DM'd me right back, and it was Chris Lewis, and he was like, "Hey, can I ca- catch up with you?" And we did, and he came over to a spring game uh, with Lauren uh, in 2018, and those conversations went for about four hours on the sideline. <laughs> you know, the game was over. <laughs> Everybody was going to eat, and Chris and I were still talking uh, about building the club and, and how it works and what was successful. And uh, those conversations carried over for the next three months, and by the time I knew it, I was signing a deal in September to be, be their head coach for the first time. Awesome. So for those of us who haven't been able to watch many Greenbelt Triumph games, can you describe the, the style you try to play? What, what, what are you trying to do with the, the Greenville squad there? Obviously, it, it's been very successful. Yeah. Um, look, our style of play is based on principles, and uh, those principles are, you know, a collective team, you know, for sure. Um, we're, we're a team that does like to, you know, possess the ball. We like to build out of the back through pressure, but we also are adaptable when high pressure comes, like finding the easiest route in the vertical play of soccer, you know, forward and keep possession. So uh, we are a pretty well-balanced team with and without the ball. I think that, you know, as, as I grew as a coach, I started to recognize in the U.S. that there's so many great teams with the ball, but a lot of teams struggle without the ball. And um, so I wanted to make sure that we understood, you know, how to defend properly you know, without the ball. And, um, you know, we did very well getting to the final in 2019. Uh, we had a lot of clean sheets there. We got goalkeeper of the year in Dallas J. Um, and then in the second season, we got the most clean sheets again. And he got, you know, goalkeeper of the year again, back to back. And our defense did a, such a great job. But, um, 
you know, on the other end of it, it was just like, you know, be creative and express yourself in that middle third to the final third. You know, we want to see that. We want to see that's why you're here as a player. So we want to allow that those guys to have that freedom to be who they are on that platform. And uh, so we have a lot of grit. You know, our guys fight for everything across the line. They take a lot of pride when they put the jersey on. And uh, each one of them understand the role of the responsibility of being out in the community and selling our game and, and being there for, for the community, you know, and part of that club. So we're only extension of our ownership group. You know, Joe Irwin is a great owner. Um, you know, he, he loves this community. He loves uh, not just Greenville in South Carolina. He loves the upstate, you know, and uh, we do a, a, you know, a lot of work, you know, to make sure that we keep our brand at a high level. Um, so it's, it's been great. It's been good for everybody down here. So what are the goals for the team this year? Are you, you ready to win a, a title on the field? That, that must have been such a bizarre sequence last year when the final was not played. It, it was. It was, um, you know, but again, it's like I said, the adaptability. You know, we prepare our, our team emotionally, you know, to not get too high with the highs and too low with the lows. It's more about we base our culture on performance and that performance starts in training. That performance starts in terms of when you come through the front door in the morning. You know, how you greet everybody and you look everybody in the eye. Um, you know, we, we can't shake hands nowadays. It's a fist bump and it's like a good morning. And um, that's how we treat everybody. So, yeah, it, you could say it was a little, little bit strange. We didn't think it was. Uh, we were dealing with teams that had COVID and postponed games and cancellations, things like that. Fortunately for us, we only had three players that were um, uh, tested positive, positive uh, COVID positive, And that was in our, maybe our, God, I want to say our third game against Madison away. And um, they quarantined. Nobody else was affected. And then we went clean the whole way through. Uh, we had a big uh, discussion in terms of, you know, how do we create our own mini bubble? We didn't have like an MLS bubble to compete in. Uh, we had to cre create our own. So our players were extremely disciplined on and off the field, um, being very cautious, understanding the protocols. And... Um, that responsibility led for us to be number one all season long. So our performances really, you know, played out on the field. And when you're number one all year long, <laughs> it doesn't feel odd to us to be champions of the league because that's how you're champions of every league around the world. And so when they said like the, the championship wasn't going to happen uh, right away, we went into the next phase of, okay, well, we're still going to host a game and it'll be an inter-squad game and it'll be fun. And we'll have a, a smaller amount of fan base there, but we're going to celebrate that. Uh, we're going to celebrate the year. And we had a great, great night, really fantastic night. And um, yeah, there's no asterisks for us. And in 2020, that's, that's behind us now, you know, and uh, I wanted to make sure that in our first meeting in the preseason that I got across to the players that our narrative this year is not defending a title that, that because that's too easy. That gives you um, ways out. Uh, you can always say, oh, we got a big target on our back and make it difficult for you. No, we won the title in 2020. We want to win the championship in 2021. How do we do that? So, you know, we've, <laughs> we've got to check ourselves every day. You know, we've got to be better as coaches and the players got to be better this year because it's going to be harder um, no matter what. But we're going to go after a championship, whether we get there or not, who knows? But we're, that's, our, that's our goal. Yeah, I mean we're definitely going to be rooting for you to accomplish that goal. Um, and can you talk a little bit um, about what, if anything, the team's doing off the field? You've mentioned the community. You've mentioned social justice in this country a couple different times. Um, so does the team have any plans for anything off the field? Yeah, we, we do. We have tremendous partnerships, um, you know, that uh, that is our focus. It's mm -hmm. not just on, like, you know, collaboration, you know, with one brand and another brand, it's actually coming together. And now in terms of, as we went through the season and we all took a knee to social injustice, mm -hmm. um, we as a group had many discussions with our club. And as a club, we decided that it's time to take action. And so instead of showing you that we don't believe in what's happening in our country. We don't agree with it. Uh, it may be uncomfortable to have those conversations, but that we want to take action. So having 
partnerships like even the YMCA who help out in terms of, you know, a lot of um, local areas that, that are really underserved and uh, are poverty stricken. Um, but through the YMCA, we were able to kind of educate and be part of something bigger in terms of social injustice and equal opportunities and inclusiveness. So we, we do a lot with them. And it, it may be um, we're going to soup kitchens or like downtown where you did, uh, it was called Feed Greenville. And we went down there and we served food for anybody that wanted to come up and have food. And we had it in our downtown Main Street all the way down. And there were hundreds of people that came there to eat and mm -hmm. all the players in our staff, we just, we were there serving food and helping people that maybe were in wheelchairs, get around and know where locations were. So we, we joined into the community a lot with that. That's great. No, that, that's awesome. And, and one thing I, as we wrap things up here, John, I, I wanted to circle back. I took some notes as, as we were talking and, and you brought up the open cup a little bit earlier on in our conversation yeah. and, every my co-hosts here were all groaning inside i'm sure when it came up because i'm i'm not thrilled at the format this year but i'm curious you know greenville has a chance to play for that title this year and and that's awesome because now i've got a team i can root for um, <laughs> but what are your thoughts on the format this year and and how do you guys prepare for those games as a third tier side with you know a chance to make some cup sets and and, and make some noise yeah i mean i think um you know the the format is never going to be what you always want it to be. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, unfortunately decisions are made. Um, well, it's not unfortunate. It, there is a process and, you know, through the COVID protocols, you know, also through DHEC in terms of the state protocols and the government, um, they're looking to see if we can get this open cup tournament off and running. So yeah, it's not an ideal situation for sure, but it's something. And so whether we were part of it or not, we always still want to see the Open Cup go mm -hmm. because it's such a great tournament. And it's, uh, you know, the opportunity for the amateur teams to play, for, you know, lower league teams to play now. It, it has a, a greater significance, I think, in terms of the growth of the game. I really do. And so how do we prepare for that? Well, you know, that's building your roster, you know, maybe adding – a few more veteran players that understand what that game is about. And as the games come fast and furious and maybe within a week span, you're playing three matches over eight days and one of them is an open cup game in between. So you've got to have players that compete and the depth of the team is important for a rotation. Um, so we've tried to do that. We're still not finished in terms of building our roster at this point. Uh, we kick off, as I say, in, in like almost two weeks time in the 24th. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we've got two more friendlies left. Uh, Louisville, we play on Sunday, uh, who have done extremely well in the USL championship, as oh, you yeah. know, and have won a title in there. John Hackworth, a great coach. And, um, and then we play Charlotte Independence, another great coach with Mike Jeffries. So, um, you know, playing those two teams, we played Charleston uh, last Friday and uh, drew with them nil-nil. And then we played DC United, as you guys know, and we tied them 1-1. So these are all good experiences for our players. So we want to make sure that we're, we're getting beat up a little bit and then we're battle ready. And so hopefully that, you know, carries forward into the season for us, but also with the Open Cup, if that does happen. Yeah, you talked about playing uh, against DC United. How did that feel coaching against your, your former club? Yeah, it was funny because... Um, yeah, somebody asked me that. One of our media people asked asked me that question. Um, I think it was the day before the game, and I didn't even think about it. They're like, "Wow, you guys coach at your own club for the first time." I was like, "Oh yeah, that's right." Um, you know, I, I I don't think you make it about yourself, mm -hmm. and it, it is exciting um, to coach against a club that you had a lot of success with, you know. But you're you're just lucky to be part of that history. And so for me, it was like preparing our guys to compete win or lose it's just about you know enjoying the experience learning more about ourselves who we are and how we can be better as a team so that was great for us and for us to come out of the gate and score first against them uh was good and um it ended up being a very good game competitive mm -hmm. game and we had a lot of trialists with us and so did they um you know so you take it for what it is and um you carry it forward but yeah it's always special when you you know 
I talk about DC United. It's close to my heart. Absolutely. And, you know, we're excited to watch what Greenville does this year and, you know, see how things continue to play out. You know, as you look at your career as a coach and, you know, maybe future challenges that come up, are there any opportunities that really stand out to you as, you know, if that opportunity were to come available, something you'd want to jump at? Would it be coaching in Europe, maybe taking over an MLS side, or are you focused on, on Greenville as it is right now? No, I, I, I think it's it's always good to be um, uh, have ambition. You know, I think mm -hmm. for players, it's really important to have ambition. Um, I think from a coaching standpoint, it's it's important to have that too and to strive for, you know, bigger challenges in life to, to test yourself. But, you know, I, I like to, you know, think about being <laughs> kind of uh, in the now, you know, being primary in the moment. I think it's important to do that. And so I don't say like, well, I want to take over that club and take over that club. Look, if, if something leads to that, though those conversations may happen, then I'll have that discussion for sure. If it's good for me and the family and uh, makes sense for me in terms of challenging me and my career at that time. And, uh, you know, hopefully at that point it makes sense then yeah, I'll take a jump at it. And, uh, but it's never about like my ego saying like, Oh, I want to, get up the ladder and I want to push these things. It's like, what's right for you and what's right for the club at that time. So we'll see. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be opposed to opportunities overseas in Europe. Not at all. I've had some small discussions with different um, people at times. And so, uh, yeah, I'm open, open to different things. I do like, uh, you know, what I've experienced at Greenville. I have been, you know, uh, I had a lot of success as a coach and mm -hmm. it's based on my staff as well and the players and the club itself. And, um, you know, I'm grateful for that. So, um, you know, but at the same time, look, it's a, I'm short in my career as a coach and uh, I've got a lot of years ahead of me, you know, and, uh, you know, looking forward to what, what that may bring. Well, John, it was an absolute blast to talk to you tonight. We thank right, you guys, so much you. for all the time and, uh, and, and all the great stories. No what problem pleasure yeah hopefully you know not not a chance and we look forward to coming down to a greenville game this year we'll, we'll yeah checking it out yeah let's uh you know put those put action behind those words john let's get <laughs> you down here uh we got a lot of good gear as well i we just got some uh some new gear that we just came out we switched over from nike this year to hummel oh yeah oh. So, so we've got some hummel gear here and uh some of the green. Oh, I like that green. green oh, those are fire. I need one of those. <laughs> yeah, so, so we got we got a lot of cool stuff here and some good brands in the environment. Uh, Triumph Stadium, uh, Legacy Early College is pretty cool right now. Um, it's an intimate stadium, holds about 4,100. Hopefully, the way that things are trending uh, with vaccinations and, uh, you know, we can start to crawl. We're crawling out of this pandemic. Yeah. Um, if we can continue to move in the right direction, we get fans back in the seats and we do it in a safe way. We'd love to have you guys down. So just let me know. Yeah, no, we'd, we'd love to do it. And uh, thanks again so much for joining us here on Tried and True. That's DC United legend and current head coach of the Greenville Triumph SC, John Harks. Thanks again, John. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Enjoy it.